Hey folks, welcome to the Dark Horse podcast live stream. I am back with Dr. Heather Hying, who has regained her ability to speak in English. Is it only English at this point? It's pretty much it's only English, pretty unfortunately. pretty much limited, limited yep. to English. All right, so we have lots to discuss this week. It has not been a boring week. No, um, no it hasn't. Yeah, which does raise a question. Do you ever have the sense that uh, reality is gaslighting you? Yeah, sometimes. You do get that sense also? Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we should talk about that because I'm definitely, I get that sense somewhat regularly and this week it's been particularly bad. Yeah. Okay. So you wanted to start it with uh, some commentary. I do. Yeah. So I have, I have 14 points that I'd like to start with and I have not shared them with you, although we have been doing plenty of talking about what's been transpiring, obviously. So but please tell me this is a 14 point plan to get us out of the trouble. Is it's, it? it is not, oh. it is not, but there are, there are 14 points here. Um, and I'm just, I'm going to share them and then we'll talk about them. Okay. All of these things I believe to be true. All of them, uh, can be, and I believe are true. One, systemic racism has a long history throughout the world and the legacy of slavery in the U S is a particularly salient example. Two, in the U.S., we were making progress against racism, both at the societal and individual level. We weren't there. We were not post-race, but we were making progress. The legacy of the civil rights era meant that it was ever more shameful and embarrassing to be publicly racist, and therefore more difficult to be privately so as well. We were making progress until the last several years when a perfect storm arrived. Just two of the parts of that perfect storm are these. One, by the early to mid-2010s, everyone was carrying a camera in their pocket in the form of a smartphone. Video footage of acts of police brutality brought that violence into everyone's living room. There was now no denying it. The flip side of this is that the visceral anecdote will always be more powerful than the dispassionate statistic. So long as any grotesque incidents exist, and grotesque incidents will always exist, so long as any exist, even if police and policing improve dramatically, it will now be even more difficult to point to the hopefulness of the second truth. And the second of many parts of the second of the perfect storm, which have eroded the advances of the civil rights movement, are the ascendancy of woke culture and intersectional thinking and critical theory. They showed up first in higher ed., spread into schools of ed, from there into K-12 schools, into cubicles, journalism, media, the arts, and beyond. This thinking holds, among other things, that we have original sin based on the color of our skin, and that there's no escaping it. Point three, black lives matter. Point four, the organization that has come to be known as Black Lives Matter does not seem to be the upstanding, honorable organization that its tagline would suggest. Five, emotion is high. The reaction to George Floyd's brutal and senseless killing was and is emotional, and that is not actually inherently a bad thing. Reason and considered analysis are not the only ways to communicate in the world. Showing raw emotion is sharp and intense and harsh and hard to look away from, and therefore it can be powerful when other modes may not be working. But, six, the months of lockdown, which we have... Brett and I have and continue to argue were, and in some cases, may continue to be necessary for public health, made people less emotionally emotionally resilient than they had been before and more fragile. Furthermore, I believe that seeing people in so-called red states party over Memorial Day weekend without social distancing may have contributed to the raw emotional outpouring by some blue state protesters. This is no justification, mind you, just an observation of factors contributing 
to the mass protests that we are seeing. Seven, protest and the right to protest are fundamental to democracy. Eight, riot is not protest. Looting is not protest. We have no right to riot or to loot, and indeed rioting and looting are anathema to democracy. Nine, Trump is correct that Antifa is inciting violence and that that violence is counterproductive to having a peaceable society. 10. White nationalists may also be involved in inciting violence on American streets right now, and Trump has in the past engaged in dog whistles to white nationalists. Furthermore, his explicit mention, Trump's explicit mention of the Second Amendment in his mostly scripted June 1st press conference can easily be interpreted as a call to arms. He said, quote, I am mobilizing all available federal resources, civilian and military, to stop the rioting and looting, to end the destruction and arson, and to protect the rights of law-abiding Americans, including your Second Amendment rights. End quote. What is the Second Amendment doing in that sentence in particular? Is it a call to civil war? If this is what it is, it is beyond anti-patriotic. It may even be treason. 11. Some cops are racist thugs. Some dentists are also racist thugs. No society should allow racist thugs to rise to positions of power. Racist thugs who are policemen, given their job, are able to do more damage to others than are racist thugs who are dentists or grocery clerks, garbage men, or electricians. Point 12. Most cops are not racist thugs. Most cops, like most dentists and grocery clerks and garbage men and electricians, are honest people with an interest in doing good. 13. Spreading blanket pronouncements of the uniform evil of some demographic, such as with the acronym ACAB, all cops are bastards, or, the, or promoting the inherent and unresolvable racism of all white people, is not just untrue, but bad for the cause that it is supposedly for. Force good and honest people to take loyalty oaths or make an admission of, admission of original sin where none exists, and some of those good and honest people will become less good and less honest. Others will wake up to the hypocrisy at the core of a movement that was supposed to do good and wonder where to turn. Finally, young Americans are in debt. Their educations have failed them. Good health care is a distant memory. The prospect of owning a house is a pipe dream for most. Many of the younger among us were raised on legal pharmaceuticals that have rendered us psychologically disorganized, unable to track or control their own emotional states or to read that of others. And our economy has become obsessed with making us into consumers. But consumption does not provide meaning. We will find true meaning in different ways. Some of us will be driven to create. Some will be driven to discover. Some will be driven to heal. Others to communicate or to build or to grow or to synthesize. Some will find meaning in the protesting of actual injustice, in the righting of wrongs. There are so many sources of meaning to be had. Instead, we are being controlled and corralled, sold to and lied to and divided. Are humans deeply tribal and competitive? Yeah. Are humans deeply collaborative? Yes. Let us recognize our shared humanity and celebrate our individual differences. We can do both. We can both recognize our shared humanity and celebrate our individual differences, and the best leaders facilitate us doing just that. Wow. I have a great joke, but I can't deliver it because that was uh, a very sober and uh, nuanced presentation. So 
Um, I'm going to resist the urge to make light of it. You're going to save the joke? No, I'm saving the joke. I will. I'll find. I will. If I have to organize a podcast to justify that joke delivered at the end as a punchline at some other point, I will do it. Um, but at the moment, um, do I you just want to don't... respond on mass or or go back through individual points. Well, How there would you is like one to take point. It? There is one point in the interest of fairness and clarity that mm-hmm. I want to. Uh, I don't want to say correct because I think what you said is technically right, but um, having uh, tripped this wire last night on Twitter, um, I am sensitive to the hazard it implies. Um, I have as yet seen very little evidence of white nationalists active at this moment in this protest. I have, I have, I have seen no evidence. Okay, but many, and in fact, the 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 thing that I left out here, you know, people are saying. Is it Antifa getting in the way of legitimate protesters? Is it and doing the rioting and looting and inciting violence? Is it white nationalists? Is it foreign countries? Right? I know all of these are out there as hypotheses, and at some level, um, the fact is it's divisive. Right. So all I want to do is make sure that we do not leave the impression that there is evidence for something for which we do not have evidence. Mm-hmm. So I've seen lots of stuff that suggests there is. Um, unnatural behavior. I don't know if these pallets of bricks that show up. I had another conversation with a business owner today who's having trouble sourcing bricks. Something odd might be going on or not. We don't know. But all I want to say is there is no question in my mind that what is taking place serves those very divisions and may in fact lead to my biggest fear is something like a race war that turns into a civil war. Um, but as yet, I have not seen the misbehavior that I uh, might expect on the white nationalist side. So um, make of it what you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of the rest, I, I'm, I think you and I have not talked about this, but I am now having conversation after conversation where uh, one person after another, somebody I respect, will say to me words to the effect of... Um, we're all evergreen now. Um, in fact, Holly Mathnerd was the first person to say something like this. And what she said was it took three years to go, um, from, for, for the country, uh, to reach the evergreen stage, uh, after evergreen did it. Now, my perspective is a little different because we lived this three years ago there's at, least, there's at least one key difference that I see, and we have not talked about this. Well, there are important differences, especially uh, Evergreen did not have a Trump figure. It had a George Bridges figure, which is a very different phenomenon. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't know what that is from, from history, but it's not Trump. Uh, let's put it this way. Um, uh, it is a lot easier to um, make light of the situation when George Bridges' ineptitude is in charge rather than the ferocious power that any president would have. And the instincts of this president uh, strike me as particularly dangerous in a crisis like this. But um, one, one other key difference is that um, there was no obvious instigating incident at Evergreen. There were widespread claims of racism without any actual incidents. And uh, while we don't, we may never know everything that happened with regard to the killing of George Floyd, clearly there was an incident and it was awful and it was recorded and televised. 
So, I mean, I think your, your 14 points do a great job of um, bringing us to this question because for my part, I'm nervous about any single incident triggering uh, an outpouring of anger like this because mm-hmm. especially in this case, you know, I, I don't know what reports. I've seen one report that says uh, that George Floyd um, died of asphyxiation. I've seen another report that suggests he was saying he couldn't breathe before he was ever on the ground. And so to the extent that you and I, I think, both believe that this protest was initially a an honest outpouring of grief and frustration, um, one doesn't want to pin it. Obviously, this was an act of police brutality. Did it kill George Floyd? Well, probably, but it, you know, there's at least one mm-hmm. scenario in which he was dying of a heart attack, was deserving of care he didn't get because this officer had his knee on his neck. And so, yes, it's a terrible incident, but if it is not exactly what it is understood to be by the people in the streets, does that undercut the reality of this? But then, it, is, it is also true that if it is what it appears, that does not inherently make it a racist act. Right. He could just be a, 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 a white cop who kills a black man is not inherently doing so because he is a racist. Right. Um, as I said in the, uh, the talk years ago, um, how the magic trick is done, mm-hmm. you know, a woman who's walking down the street and takes me to have given her uh, a look that has some sort of uh, content to it doesn't know whether or not that same awkward look was given to the guy who passed right after her, or if it was actually about her being females. You just can't tell from an anecdote. But none of this, I mean, I think you and I would agree, none of this really matters. There is honest anger and frustration, and it is really truly based on something, even though the data on police killings of black people are not reflective of the pattern that many people believe is just clear, right? So there uh, is disproportionate killing of uh, black people by cops, but in absolute terms, it more often happens to white people. And uh, in any case, the data is muddled. But that does not mean that when people who have experienced brutality um, see it on film that it does not call forth an honest reflection of some different experience that they are having with cops. And so in any case, I'm very troubled that everything gets hung on a single incident, which can then undercut it if the incident isn't what it appears to be. Mm -hmm. I'm more troubled by the undercutting of the legitimacy of the initial outpouring of emotion that came from the looting and the violence, which we have seen so much of. And I am Uh, very interested in us unpacking how this all works and why this protest has turned so ugly and so um, uh, cynical, I would say. Mm -hmm. I mean, just the simple prevalence of um, needless beatings and, um, and stealing of goods and all really just makes it, uh, it makes it very hard to say anything nuanced about it because I feel like there was something to be said at first, and now um, those of us who would say it have uh, found ourselves in the very awkward position of wanting to be wanting to be very clear that we don't support the wanton destruction. I mean, what even is this? There's no 
There are no demands on the table. There's nothing obvious that could be done to placate other than signs of fealty, which are not even appropriate. Well, and there's a way, you know, it, it is reminiscent of Evergreen in some ways, in part because some of what is happening is coming from exactly the same playbook. And, um, you know, what, one, of, one of the things that I am seeing is a, a demand for, for submission and a, a call for allyship. Uh, on the part of all those who would join the cause but uh, don't have the the right skin color, and it's that part is alarming in its similarity to what we saw. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, in the spirit of history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And as we said, as Evergreen was unfolding, Evergreen was ahead of the curve, but that given time we would get there if yeah. people didn't take the warning. We have now arrived there. The particulars are different. You know, the hazards are different. Mm-hmm. Um, Evergreen was dangerous. And I, as Evergreen was unfolding, I had the terrible sense that it was unfolding, that the uh, extraordinary, uh, the exaggerated nature of what we were seeing was very much like a, a sort of poorly poorly drawn movie everything was so over the top that it was it looked like a movie script in which somebody didn't have a knack for subtlety and what i worried about the whole time was that it was very clear based on the way movie scripts go especially one written without subtlety was that that movie was going to end with an ironic lynching of a white person and that the most likely person for that to be would have been me so anyway i was very Glad that we, uh, I think, derailed it. I'm not saying that that would have happened, but given that the violence yeah. was escalating and that the police were out of the picture, um, that certainly was seemed a possibility. And we are now seeing the same things in play in, uh, you know, in the nation as a whole. So one, you know, to go back to the first point you raised with regard to a difference between what we're seeing unfold um, society-wide, uh, in in the United States right now versus what happened at Evergreen three years ago right now um, is that there was, you know, George Bridges, the president of Evergreen, was no Trump and never would have aspired to be such a person. And in fact, the uh, the epithets that people came up with for him involved spineless and invertebrate and beta and, you know, this sort of thing, right? And I think this actually points out one of, um, you know, we, we needed a leader then, Evergreen needed a leader, and the country needs a leader now. And in neither case did we or do we have a good leader, but the failures are radically different. So George Bridges could not figure out or was not interested in figuring out how to actually lead or how to be actually alpha, which is what we want in a leader. So if if, if it's okay, I know you have places that you want to go here, but can I just say a few things about what what an alpha is, because I think this is something that um, Trump imagines he is. Um, but it, the term comes out of animal behavior, and I've thought a lot about this ever since. Uh, ever since we were in college, in fact, when we were studying with Bob Trivers and beginning to study the evolution of social behavior, and I specifically was reading the work of Franz De Waal, who's an extraordinary primatologist, and his work, um, he's written many books. Um, his most recent one is Mama's Last Hug, which is about um, the evolution and 
experience of emotion in non-human animals. But at that point, I was reading Peacemaking Among Primates in service of my undergraduate senior thesis, which was about the role of affiliations and friendships between um, female non-human primates. And um, you know, in, typically in social species um, that have adult males and adult females living side by side, you have distinct dominance hierarchies. That so there's male dominance hierarchies and there's female dominance hierarchies, and they often play by so, sort of the same roles, but not exactly. And then male-female relationships are not always inherently sexual, but there's different roles there, right? So, um, I was thinking about peacemaking among primates, DeWall's book from must be the eighties, in. Um, in reference to this this presser that he held yesterday, that Trump held yesterday, that was so remarkable, uh, and you pointed out that George Will, who is you know famously conservative, wrote within I don't know practically minutes of that press conference coming out an op-ed in Washington Post, um, in which he said among other things, quote, uh, that Trump is a weak person's idea of a strong person. This is one of the most um, compelling conservative voices uh, that we we still have around. Um, you know, you and I remember him from when we were in high school. So this guy's been around for a long time. Um, DeWall makes the argument in uh, in his newest book, Mama's Last Hug, that most people have a caricature in their heads of what an alpha male is, based in fact in the in part on the fact that Newt Gingrich in the 90s, recommended DeWall's book, Chimpanzee Politics, Power and Sex Among Apes, to freshman congressmen in the early 90s. And that this prompted this caricature of self-confidence and swagger and purpose and alphas beating the hell out of everyone and reminding every one day who the winner is. Um, and alpha goes it alone. He crushes the competition. Um, and uh, alpha is basically like a bully in this rendering, right? Uh, and the truth uh, DeWall points out in chimps, and he would argue in humans as well, is that, okay, some alphas are indeed merciless tyrants. Fair enough. The biggest, strongest, meanest, they have, uh, they, they, they are exactly that thing, but they're the exception. That many more alphas that he has seen in his decades of working uh, with non-human primates is that alpha males don't get to the top on their own. They have assistance. The smallest, you know, the actual physically smallest male can be alpha if he has the right supporters. And most alphas protect the underdog, keep the peace, reassure those who are distressed. And for me, the most surprising thing here, as someone who has studied social behavior of animals in the wild for also decades, is that alphas tend to be what Duval calls the healer-in-chief, that he and his his people did an analysis of consoling behavior, specifically who gives hugs, who offers hugs after someone has lost a, height, a fight. And in general, females give many more hugs than males in chimps in other species. Um, but even though that's true, that across the board, females give more hugs to console losers of fights, the alpha male is the exception to that. Alpha males, far and away, give more hugs to those who have lost fights than anyone else in the entire system. When fights break out, the community looks to the alpha to see how to handle it. Um, and one last thing, DeWall writes, quote, he is the final arbiter, intent on restoring harmony. He will impressively stand between screaming parties with his arms raised until things calm down. That's well, leadership. I get where you're going with this, but I do not want a hug from that man. Um, now, all right. So 
Uh, a, this is really interesting. You and I did not talk about this beforehand. And of yeah. course, I was on a, a parallel track. I should just say that the concept yeah. alpha with respect to dogs is not what people think it is. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about something else. Um, what the important, uh, I, I want to actually take issue with one thing. Yeah. Right. I guess I'm taking issue with George Will here a, li a, a little bit. George, which, George Will, not Franz de Wall. Right. Okay. Which is that I... So the quote that I gave from George Will was, uh, Trump is a weak person's idea of a strong person. Is it that or something else in the op-ed? No, it's that. Yeah. Um, I think that this is easy to get wrong. Trump actually is strong. He has navigated yeah. his way to the top successfully, and I believe he is riding this crisis to his own benefit successfully, to all of our great detriment and to tremendous risk to the Republic. But nonetheless, um, there is power in what he is doing. I believe he has an obligation not to pursue it and that he falls down on that obligation quite regularly. Mm -hmm. What I do think Will is alluding to here is that Trump is not a secure man. Trump is an insecure man who is compensating for that insecurity, for his desperate need for affirmation. And you can hear this in so many of the things that he says, where he's always talking about how great we are and how we never lose. And then, I mean, I saw a tweet today in which, you know, he, he has a parenthetical, thank you, Trump, or something. I mean, thank you, President Trump, for some claimed victory or whatever. The point is, it's transparent that he is insecure. And my feeling is... Um, as a man who has observed other men over a long period of time, a powerful, insecure man is a very dangerous phenomenon. And at this moment, it could not possibly be more of a hazard to us. So um, he is powerful. He is successful at wielding, at gathering and wielding power. And he is dangerous because the end to which he will wield it is very frequently a self-aggrandizing end when at the, you know, what we need, of course, is a leader who is uh, a patriot. And that inherently means one who will sacrifice for his nation when need be, which means bypassing political opportunity in order to better the nation, to heal a crisis, whatever it is. So largely in agreement, but, um, right. but it is the insecurity that I believe is so lethal. You, I think you used the word needy with me a week or two ago. You said, I wasn't sure exactly what it was apropos, but this, this was beginning to, to boil yep. all of this. And uh, you said, I think the trait that I find hardest to deal with in other people is neediness. Is. And insecurity and neediness are not identical, but they are certainly closely aligned concepts. Well, it is particularly bad in a man whose signature is strength and power. Yeah. Right, because the strength and power gets wielded in a very dangerous way. Um, so, um, sorry, I don't know what power tool that is, yeah. but it uh, <laughs> threw me here. <laughs> Indeed. Um, what did I want to say? Well, I've now forgotten it. But, um, okay, let's talk a little bit about the protests themselves mm -hmm. and how they are interacting with all of this. Something that's been on my mind quite a bit uh, in the last several days is the tension between a, uh, a peacemaking dynamic that I have seen hints of many times now and the thing that disrupts it. And yeah. what I want to call our viewers' attention to is 
the way game theory haunts this whole story. So the first thing I want to say is riots and looting have a particular nature to them. Okay, there's a reason that looting is a thing that has a name that very frequently emerges in history at times of crisis. And it basically works like this. If you have a, a city, you hire some number of police officers. It has to be enough to do the job. It, and then it's a diminishing returns problem. So you could hire more cops. And if you hire more cops, it costs more. And the good you get out of adding another cop to the force goes down with each unit above some level. And so you want to hire an economically efficient number of cops. And that economically efficient number of cops is inevitably based on what's necessary under normal circumstances. There is a point at which your cops become so busy with some phenomenon that is unusual with some kind of black swan event or something that the usual force that keeps people in line, that keeps honest people honest, breaks down. And those people who are hovering closest to the edge of that border discover that the thing that would ordinarily penalize them for doing X, Y, or Z happens to be preoccupied with something else. And so they engage in looting. That is a very sad but normal uh, phenomenon. The problem here is that it doesn't take very much to put us in jeopardy of that. And in the context of a protest that started out over something legitimate, we have the added phenomenon of, let's say that the protest is one thing. It's the George Floyd protest. And the George Floyd protest suffers from the fact that if somebody loots a store in Chicago, it is then seen by everybody everywhere. The protest has now paid the price of the looting that went on on some corner in Chicago. And that decreases the added cost of somebody looting in Houston. So in some sense, we have a tragedy of the commons unfolding where the people who are um, least in line with the objective of the protest begin to, to color the way the protest unfolds because they do the dramatic thing that violates the notion that this is an honest outgrowth of sentiment. And it spreads because uh, as long as the protest is paying the cost of uh, looking bad, uh, the opportunity to get an upgraded phone is irresistible for a lot of people. So um, mm -hmm. anyway, it's it's a tragedy of the commons, and tragedy is a real tragedy in this case. Um, okay, so now let's carry through to the game theory that we're seeing unfold that goes the other direction. And we've seen this several times in Portland this week, and we've seen it elsewhere. There's something new, and this did not happen during Occupy, I have to tell you. I never saw it even once. There's a moment at which the protesters are calm and the cops are calm and they are trying to figure out how to negotiate with each other, mm -hmm. right? The cops do not like the predicament where they have to crack down on the protesters. Does that mean no cops like it? No, those cops are on the force too. But there are lots of cops who don't want to be cracking down on people and they're getting pushed into it and they don't like it. And anyway, it's all understandable. So they want to negotiate too. There's a moment of calm. There's some sort of exchange of lightheartedness or goodwill or something, right? 
And then some asshole lights a firecracker or throws a bottle or does something, right? Or an asshole on the other side decides to fire some tear gas or whatever it is. And the thing breaks down in an instant. And all it takes is one. All it takes is one. And the point I think that I'm deriving from this always annoyed me that Occupy thought that it needed to be a leaderless movement. Now, it did that for a reason. A, a movement with leaders can be co-opted or their leaders can be uh, killed or disrupted in other ways. So leaders are a vulnerability. But not having them is an even bigger vulnerability because what it means is there's nobody in a position to, to calm the crowd, to punish the person who would set off the firecracker. There's nobody to say, actually, that doesn't speak for us. That's right. That's not us, right? And because that person is absent, there is no mechanism for this natural peacemaking tendency to actually take over. We could get somewhere without Trump imposing martial law, for God's sake. We could get there if we had some mechanism to allow the natural peacemaking to happen, even now, even after all of the looting and violence that we've seen. Yeah. If, if any group could define someone and allow them to speak for the group, there would be fewer bottles thrown uh, at the point that peace is emerging. Uh, the, the prediction, one of the predictions of what you just laid out, is that um, those, those things that break an emerging peace in standoffs between protesters and police are more likely to emerge from the protesters than from the police because, of course, um, the police does have hierarchy, does have leader. And um, if... If the police department in question is not wholly corrupt, and I believe that there are vanishingly few entirely corrupt police departments in the U.S. at this point, not to say that there might not be some or that there aren't some with way higher percentage of corrupt police than, than, I, would, than I would want to know, um, but someone a a member of the force who does something wrong as police is emerge as as peace is emerging uh can be reprimanded um by their leader and their leader could say that doesn't stand for us whereas there is no mechanism by which that exists among a um leaderless hierarchyless group of protesters peaceful you know peaceful until they're not protesters yeah, I agree. There's a hierarchy inherent to the police force, which allows for control if that's the instinct. And this then gets us to this very thorny issue of the anarchists and in particular the, the Antifa. Although, frankly, I don't even want to play that game anymore. Like, yeah. yes, the Antifa exists. And, you know, the president has learned that he can invoke them and rile people up because they make themselves uh, so difficult to uh, to empathize with. And, the, frankly, they make the entire protest movements so they mm -hmm. by design they make it impossible to empathize with that's their that's their whole mo um but the the problem here is that they actually have an ideology it's goofy as all get out right it would not take two hours of careful thought to explain why it's incorrect and must not be allowed to drive the movement but you never get the two hours right um, I must have spent a hundred hours during Occupy trying to explain to the anarchists why this wasn't going to work for very simple mundane reasons that didn't have to do with anybody being out to get them. It just has to do with basically whether the strategy they're advocating is stable or whether it opens the door to tyranny. Um, 
but you never get there, which means that that little ideology, which they get together and discuss privately, that thing is then allowed to interfere with the natural, admittedly tense relationship that would otherwise exist between the protesters and the cops, mm -hmm. right? But the, the ability of a small number of people to demonize the entire police force so that the police force are not people, they are vermin. And then the mm -hmm. police see the protesters in the same light and nobody's allowed to cross the line because that's considered treason. That thing is what is causing this tragedy. And um, I don't know how, I mean, in a, in a leaderless movement, and this obviously is a leaderless movement at the moment, uh, I don't know how it is that somebody makes the point generally, actually, for you to have your grievance addressed, you have to get away from those people. They are mm -hmm. about something else. They are actually about the wrong idea that if you tear civilization apart, what replaces it will be better. They are wrong about that idea, and they are causing your movement to do their bidding, right? Mm -hmm. That's unacceptable, and you need leaders to stop it. And if you just imagine, I mean, I've seen a lot of comparisons this week of uh, the current situation with, you know, 1968 in, in particular. Mm -hmm. um, but the big difference is the total leadership vacuum on all sides. There's just no leadership. You've got politics being played at the top level. You've got a movement in which nobody is empowered to speak. And, you know, it's just, it's a disaster in the making. Well, I mean, another key difference, and this is <clears throat> so obvious it feels like it's not worth saying, but it's utterly critical, is that um, you know, as you mentioned earlier, someone loots in Chicago and the entire world sees it. So there is no ability for any of these protests in any of the American cities to emerge, to evolve organically on their own. We would expect that protests that happen in Portland versus Minneapolis versus DC versus Atlanta versus LA, wherever, to be different. The people are different. Even absent differences in cultures and geography, it's just different human beings involved. And there will be different initial conditions and different people making errors, and those errors will be different, and different people making excellent decisions, and those excellent decisions will be different. What the what social media and widespread access to the internet allows is for a universalizing of experience and the destruction of individual cultural and regional differences such that there is no possibility for organic protest to evolve distinctly in any place. At the point that we started, this became a positive feedback chaos. It was almost impossible that it could be stopped unless you know, any city that wasn't already doing that needed to effectively block itself from being able to see what was going on in the rest of the world. And we have no mechanism for that. Yeah. I, I started having a, a thought like this when I first saw the, um, the footage of Nicholas Christakis being confronted at Yale, right? And there was something so odd about this because we now know Nicholas uh, personally, and he is every bit as decent as he seems online and, you know, in speeches yeah. and all. Um, and so you had these very privileged kids at Yale confronting this very decent person as a proxy for some battle that, 
if it's any like anything like evergreen doesn't even exist at yale right so at, at, at evergreen we had a battle over white supremacy that didn't exist there as if it existed there and the whole thing made no sense because of that same thing at yale and so what you're saying and i i see it too is there is an an honest heartfelt objection to something but mm -hmm. it isn't everywhere and to have that objection raised You've got a problem. Cops and their enforcement against citizens is the is the question. Mm -hmm. And you have cops confronting citizens over this question all over the place, irrespective of how those cops are doing with those citizens. And so it basically takes the problem and it duplicates it everywhere, even if the problem wasn't so bad in some places and was really terrible in other places. And exactly. There's there's real grievance. There is real grievance that people have. But what we're seeing is not based on real grievance always. Well, I don't even want to say that. It's not It's not always based on real grievance. No. I'm, I'm certain of that. Uh, that's not what I mean. Of course, there is phony baloney stuff. But let's put it this way. I think there was a conversation to be had at Yale. And I think there was a conversation to be had at Evergreen. Mm -hmm. The thing that made it impossible to have the conversation was the accusation that it was present right there. Mm -hmm. Right? So in other words... My feeling is if you, maybe you're a black person who finds yourself at Yale and maybe there isn't racism at Yale in the sense that they were complaining about, but because you're a privileged member from that population, in some sense, you have a greater obligation because you have the opportunity to raise the point that things are not generally fair and that lots of people don't have those opportunities. You feel some lineage-based obligation to raise the point because you've made it to a place where the point can actually be heard. Now, that doesn't look anything like shrieking at Nicholas Christakis. No. Right? That's the opposite of what it means. But there's no, we don't have the proper tooling to allow somebody to speak, you know, for those who aren't in a good position to do it without alleging that it is themselves that they are speaking for in some sense. And so mm -hmm. we are seeing the dynamic unfold and it is, um, it is ironic, paradoxical, counterproductive, and in the end, um, it makes, it just makes the point unhearable. Yeah. No. And I, I mean, one of, one of the, pieces of my 14-point introduction to today's live stream um, that was just part of one sentence at the very end. I think, you know, we've spent a lot of time talking about this in the past, but I think is actually critical. The fact that we have drugged a whole generation of people with, with legal drugs, with mood disruptors, mood eveners, uh, as well as steroid hormones and, and all sorts of other madness, but uh, especially uh, especially having uh, drugged children during their development who were given who were given diagnoses of either having anxiety disorders or attention deficit hyperactivity disorders, uh, and they were not allowed to grow up and to learn how to experience their own emotional states, to understand their own psychology, at the point that they show up in college or beyond, uh, they've been in lockdown for a while. They don't see what their prospects are. They don't know how they're going to get out from under debt. They don't know how to have health insurance, how to have relationships. 
and they see something as brutal as a man being killed while crying for help under the knee of a of a a maybe but a, a cop of a different race of a, who's white and it all comes out yeah it all comes out of course it does but that doesn't mean that all of the anger is about the thing this is not all about george floyd no i mean it, george floyd is uh is the symbol. And, you know, there's actually a long history of that with respect to historic protests where somebody's mm -hmm. death triggers basically, you know, all of the pent up emotion that comes from all of the deaths of people whose names we don't know. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, anyway, that's, that's sort of a natural process, but um, <clears throat> I guess I'm also just struck by the leadership vacuum is really, to me, it's just almost impossible to, to get past it at this point. And, and the fact that we are hurtling towards an election that if nothing amazing happens, will result in us uh, continuing for another four years without a leader at the top at a moment when we absolutely positively 100% need one. Mm -hmm. um, so that dynamic itself suggests that we have a whole second layer of problem that needs addressing. But in all of this, I keep thinking, um, with respect to interesting, uh, dynamic, heterodox thinkers, no place do we have a deeper bench than when it comes to people who are of African descent in America. It's amazing how many high-quality people we have. And they are, by and large, sidelined from this discussion. It's not to say they aren't saying things on Twitter, but the idea that we are not drafting these people to center stage to have that conversation, uh, to me, is just very odd because they, um, <laughs> the absence of a Martin Luther King-like figure here is a tragedy. The fact that we have many people who, I believe, Many of them could play some role like that, but combined, there's no question. The firepower is there to move this discussion. So you're onto thinking solid about ground. just I, I did not know you were gonna say this, but just off the top of my head. Let's see. Uh, John McWhorter, yep. Glenn Lowry, yep. Coleman Hughes, yep. Chloe Valdery, yep. John Wood Jr., Bob Woodson, more, 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 more. But uh, Josephine Matthias. Oh yeah. Uh, She's Canadian. Oh. Well, oh, damn. All right. we annex Canada, we get Josephine. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see, who have we forgotten? Um, many, I'm sure, but... Yeah, but I mean, mm. even even just there, um, that's a that's an incredibly large... R uh, Riley? J Jason Riley? Not sure. Okay. Um, in any case, uh, you got uh, Thomas Chatterton Williams on your oh, list? No. Okay, yeah. so this is a lot... Not in America now, but he's an American living in France. So this is a yeah, lot of amazing. people yeah. who uh, deeply understand stuff. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm now regularly asked by people, well, if you were in Trump's shoes, what would you do? And I resent the question because I mm -hmm. never would have let it got this to, to this spot, right? right? I would have... Um, done much more, much sooner. And frankly, uh, it's hard to imagine botching the job this badly. Um, but one of the things that I certainly would have done had I found myself in that position was I would have brought all of those people in and we would have been having a very deep conversation about what the state of race relations are in the U.S., especially with respect to black and white dynamics. Mm -hmm. And, you know, 
How do I know that's what I would have done? Because you and I proposed this very thing when Evergreen came apart before they forced us out. Our proposal was to bring many of those people together for a conference on race relations to turn Evergreen around, to take that absurd spectacle of a meltdown and turn it into yeah. something positive that would change the national conversation. And they said no. And they said no, of course, because yeah. that's the Evergreen way. Mm. Yeah. So we're nearing the end of an hour. Um, I want to finish with a little Dostoevsky, but I know you have some other things that you want to talk about I, here. I have a couple things that I have to. So we yeah. will return to Dostoevsky. Um, uh, I promised on Twitter to explain why I disliked the Atlantic article, which you have a link to. Um, it was an Atlantic article. Is it this? Yes. Okay, and it says so the protest. put that up? The protests will spread the coronavirus. Um, and I had an immediate negative reaction to this because although there is positive stuff in this article, that title specifically is very misleading. And it is misleading for reasons that people who have been watching this podcast will uh, intuit. One thing is we do not know if the coronavirus is going to be spread by the protests. There's one reason to think that that is actually not highly likely, and that is that the coronavirus, there is substantial evidence to suggest it is very difficult to contract outdoors. Now, the article does go to great lengths to say, not great lengths, but it goes to some lengths to say that arrests, actually, that put people in paddy wagons and cells are therefore a particular liability. Yep. But my concern is, there is almost certain to be a jump in the number of cases because the lockdown is being eased. That jump is going to be attributed to the protests, which is then going to be blamed on the protesters, which is unfair. Now, if we can begin to segue to the next little piece of this puzzle, it's possible that the protests will spread the virus. I would advise everybody who is out there, A, you should probably figure out what to do about the riot problem, and until you do, you should go home. Um, but uh, you should wear a mask. But one of the things we don't know is whether outdoors is comparatively safe because of UV light, in which case nighttime will not have that effect, and mm -hmm. they should be very, very careful. Um, or if it is something else, like the high volume of the spaces, and there's a lot of evidence that circumstantially suggests that that will be the case because uh, the movement of air seems to be uh, contributing to safety and all. I've seen evidence that it's that it's both and perhaps more, but that uh, that absent UV light at night, there will be less protective effect of being outside, but there is still protective effect of having open space and uh, dispersion of of viral particles. Right. Okay. So I said something very provocative on Twitter, which was <laughs> that actually this, the coronavirus- This uh, other thing you sent? No, no. no that okay. uh, the, uh, the protest could be protective because a lot of people who would otherwise be indoors during the lockdown will be outdoors where it's very difficult to contract. <laughs> oh, no, you so, didn't. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm, not, I'm just saying that's a possibility. So okay. it could be protective. But what I don't want to see is us leap to the conclusion when we do see a jump in the number of cases, which is almost certain based on the end of the lockdown, that it was the yeah. protest that did it. That's unfair to the protesters. And it treads very close to a recurrent trope in history where the enemy is declared to be something like infectious, mm -hmm. right? So anyway, I don't want to see that happen. Um, all right. A uh, couple other points on coronavirus. One, I don't have a link for this one, but evidence uh, started to emerge this week of it being a primarily 
uh, circulatory blood uh, blood vessel born mm-hmm. virus, which is um, both curious and interacts with the lab origin hypothesis potentially because one of the possible techniques that might have been used in a laboratory if this did in fact emerge from a laboratory would have involved passage through what are called HeLa cells. Now HeLa cells are a very famous cell line from human beings, a cell line that has been in circulation for many decades. And the reason that you can have a cell this line- This is the Henrietta Lacks. Um, so there was a movie made about her recently, this whole story. I don't remember exactly what, but this is the HeLa being Henrietta Lacks cell. So it's right. her line. It's her cell line. Now, right? if you're paying real close attention to the podcast, you'll think, how could you have a cell line circulating for decades? Wouldn't it have run out of telomere, right? Well, what kind of cell doesn't run out of telomere? Cancer cells don't. Helen Lacks died of cancer, Henrietta. and these uh, Henrietta Lacks yeah. died of cancer, and these cells are cells from her tumor, which now vastly outnumber, as I understand it, the number of cells that were in her body when she was alive, and they are used as human model cells in many laboratory experiments. So, cancers have an interesting dynamic. Cancers that actually function and are persistent have an interesting dynamic with respect to blood vessels. They have to grow them in order to feed that mass of tissue, which is growing and and doesn't have access to the circulatory system of the body. So it would die off. It would get necrotic and die off if it didn't generate its own uh, circulatory vessels. So one question is, if this was created with a laboratory serial passage experiment in something like HeLa cells, Would it have a unique relationship to blood vessels? I don't know, but it's certainly something we would want to study, and ruling out the possibility that it came through a lab will prevent us from doing so, which brings me to the next point. So I have uh, told viewers of this podcast that the laboratory origin hypothesis, and by laboratory origin, I don't mean that the thing was created fully in a lab. I mean that a lab would have taken a virus from the wild and might have made a chimera or it might have put it through serial passage, or it might have done both, and in so doing modified what the virus does, and then the virus might have escaped, or it could just have been brought into the lab and could have escaped from the lab without modification. But that the viability of those hypotheses is greatly much greater than what we are being led to believe by establishment sources, and that we are effectively being misled that any such idea is... Uh, preposterous from a scientific point of view, which is, of course, not correct. Well, that narrative that those who talk about this idea are obviously not grasping the science, that narrative has begun to crack. It began to crack in a major way with an article by Matt Ridley in the Washington Post earlier this week. So that's this, Zach, if you want to put that up. Here's Matt Ridley. Um, The article is short but excellent, and it points out that the laboratory uh, hypothesis is anything but dead, and that the Wuhan fish market hypothesis is effectively dead. Um, And And then then there's this. More recently, a much more extensive article in the Independent Science News um, that argues that, in fact, the laboratory origin hypothesis is most probable, which is, of course, the position that I took weeks ago on this podcast. Yep. Um, these are both worth reading. They both reference Yuri Deegan's work, who we looked at uh, in an earlier live stream. And in any case, the point here is not that we know that this came from the lab. We still don't know, and none of these authors would say so. 
That's right? right. But what we do know is that anybody who was telling you from the beginning that that was a non-viable hypothesis was misleading you. And we now have a terrible problem, as I warned you we would. And that terrible problem is that such a large fraction, like nearly 100% of the virology community, has been backing this story that laboratory origin was a dead-on-arrival hypothesis that now we have no experts we can go to almost. That's an amazing predicament to be in in light of the mm -hmm. SARS-CoV-2 predicament that we find ourselves in. So in any case, that's more or less where things stand. Um, I would argue we have an obligation to... Uh, take this hypothesis seriously because this is where the evolutionary dynamics come in. If it did come through the lab, it will have been modified to laboratory conditions that could provide us opportunities to fight it and it could provide obstacles that we need to know about. And if we don't take this hypothesis seriously at the highest level, we're not going to figure it out. And the opportunities are going to pass us by and we're going to fall right into the hazards. All right. You so, want to go to Dostoevsky? Yeah, before we before we break. Yep. Yeah. So um, to finish up, the idea of the plague that we are experiencing being not just the pathogen, but also the, the societal collapse that accompanies uh, the pathogen, either before or after, uh, was an idea that showed up for me formally this week on Twitter, um, a, an account uh, at Mimetic Value um, said... Um, by the way, one modern narrative problem is that people focus too much on the virus. It's true that the virus causes the disease, but this focus leads us to missing the whole picture. It continues, traditionally before the pathogen origin of diseases were discovered, people associated the whole time period of chaos with the plague. The social contagion of the, of the riots is intertwined with the biological contagion of the virus. Together they are the plague. So I found this fascinating and asked this uh, this person, I'm imagining a he, I don't, I don't know, um, if he had a reference. And he pointed me to a René Girard paper from 1974 called The Plague in Literature and Myth, in which Girard cites um, Shakespeare and Dostoevsky and many others. And specifically, he cites um, just the very last bits of, of Crime and Punishment, of Fyodor Dostoevsky's 18, what is it, 66 novel, um, with, as is so typical of Dostoevsky, a really complicated and, um, you know, difficult and yet ultimately endearing protagonist, Raskolnikov. So in the very last pages of Crime and Punishment, Raskolnikov reports a dream. And I just want to finish with, uh, with this, directly from Dostoevsky in the, in the um, translation, of course. He dreamt that the whole world was condemned to a terrible new strange plague that had come to Europe from the depths of Asia. Some new sorts of microbes were attacking the bodies of men, but these microbes were endowed with intelligence and will. Men attacked by them became at once mad and furious. But never had men considered themselves so intellectual and so completely in possession of the truth as these sufferers. Never had they considered their decisions, their scientific conclusions, their moral convictions so infallible. Whole villages, whole towns and peoples went mad from the infection. All were excited and did not understand one another. Each thought that he alone had the truth and was wretched looking at the others, beat himself on the breast, wept, and wrung his hands. They did not know how to judge and could not agree what to consider evil and what good. They did not know whom to blame, whom to justify. Men killed each other in a sort of senseless spite. They gathered together in armies against one another, but even on the march, the armies would begin attacking each other. The ranks would be broken and the soldiers would fall on each other, stabbing and cutting, biting and devouring each other. 
The alarm bell was ringing all day long in the towns. Men rushed together, but why they were summoned and who was summoning them, no one knew. The most ordinary trades were abandoned because everyone proposed his own ideas, his own improvements, and they could not agree. The land, too, was abandoned. Men met in groups, agreed on something, swore to keep together, but at once began on something quite different from what they had proposed. They accused one another, fought, and killed each other. There were conflagrations and famine. All men and things were involved in destruction. The plague spread and moved further and further. That's Dostoevsky from 1866. Wow. Um, Yeah, and in fact, uh, 1866. 1866. Okay, so just barely post-Origin of Species. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is something to this notion of rotten ideas and their spread and uh, viruses which spread differently but in a parallel fashion. And we are seeing... And end up intertwined in an inseparable way. In an inseparable way, yeah. I am put in mind of the president's remarkable speech and then yesterday's photo op stunt last evening um and thinking that he strikes me very much as a man who believes his ideas to be so correct that they are not worth uh putting through any kind of challenge it's a very frightening situation we find ourselves in it is yes um all right um I think we have reached the end of this hour. The Q&A portion of this episode can be found on Brett Weinstein's YouTube channel, linked in the description below.